Welcome to Latin American Intersections, where we explore the intersection of business, geopolitics, and social impact in the Latin American and Caribbean region. Our team is here to bring you the insights you need on current events from leaders and experts in the public, private, academic, and civic sectors. Latin American Intersections is presented by Ozilold Group, a consultancy focused on stakeholder relations and alternative risk reduction, building collaborations across sectors and industries to improve outcomes for clients and communities. Please keep in mind that the opinions, ideas, and information discussed on this podcast are those of the individual host and guest and do not necessarily reflect the official stances of organizations they are affiliated with. Be sure to follow at LATAM Podcast on your social media, share an episode or two with your friends, and send us your questions about the region. And don't forget to rate us on any of your favorite podcast apps. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Latin American Intersections, Business, Geopolitics, and Security in the LAC Region. Today, we'll be looking at India's engagement with the region economically and politically, current or future security collaborations, and even look at the status of India's investments in Venezuelan oil. To help me explore this topic today, I have Dr. Evan Ellis, Latin America Research Professor at the U.S. Army War College and Senior Non-Resident Fellow at CSIS, Center for Strategic and International Studies. Before we begin, here are a few key facts provided by the Inter-American Development Bank in their Latindia report, which you can download for free from their website. Note that according to this report, 150 or more Indian companies have operations in Latin America. 15% of outbound foreign direct investment from India goes to Latin America. 45% of Indian business activity in LAC is in the pharmaceutical sector. And 70% of Indian exports to South America are manufacturers. With that in mind, consider that India's trade in the region was $30 billion from 2016 to 2017, with leading export destinations being Mexico, Brazil, Colombia, Peru, Chile, and Argentina, with four of those making up the Pacific Alliance. What is the future of all this India-Latin America business, and how might it affect regional security? Let's find out with Dr. Ellis. All right, everyone, I finally have Dr. Evan Ellis in the room, <laughs> or the virtual room, as it were. Uh, Dr. Ellis, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Uh, first off, um, could you tell us just a little bit about yourself and any interesting and current projects that you're working on? Sure. I'm the Latin America Research Professor with the U.S. Army War College Strategic Studies Institute, which is basically the Army's think tank at the strategic level to help the Army and DOD uh, understand the important issues, in, in my case, what's uh, happening in, in Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, the, uh, I'm working on a variety of, of different projects. Uh, just completed a book on transnational organized crime in Latin America, and uh, I'm doing a projects right now on Chinese engagement in Ecuador and uh, the impacts of the end of the China-Taiwan uh, diplomatic truce as that plays out in, in Latin America in places like the Dominican Republic and uh, Panama. Those are a lot of great projects, and I hope uh, that you will follow up with us as those come to fruition or as uh, you make some progress on some of those. Uh, when, um, when is your next big thing going to be due? 
The, uh, the preliminary findings on my China-Ecuador work is going to be presented in Quito, Ecuador, in a conference of the International Studies Association in, uh, in, in Quito, in, in uh, Flaxo, Quito, in uh, July. That's great. Looking forward to it. Um, Dr. Ellis, so uh, I know that we've had some discussions over at uh, Florida International University at some of the panels and conferences that they host. Um, and I know, uh, as we discussed before, we are looking a little bit today at India's engagement with the LAC region, with Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, it's not a topic that a lot of people think about. It is something that is getting a lot of attention from groups like the uh, Inter-American Development Bank, uh, which, which recently put out its uh, Latindia report in February um, with a lot of interesting findings as far as the, uh, the opportunity to grow within that space between India and the LAC region. Um, I guess one of the things that I want to kind of bring to the forefront in discussion with you is how does India's engagement with Latin America and the Caribbean compare to China's engagement, uh, both economically and politically, as well as is there any sort of security collaboration between India and the LAC region? And how does that compare to, say, China or Russia? Sure, it's a great question, Michael. And I remember when I first began doing some of my China-Latin America work uh, back in 2004-2005, there was a conference at the Corporación Andino de Fomento, one of the, the big uh, uh, Latin American development banks, uh, put on in which uh, it explicitly focused on China and India. And uh, the general uh, consensus at the time was that uh, China was somewhat more interesting for Latin America than, than India. Although uh, uh, there is a continual attempt to focus also on India, uh, there was actually a, an important book uh, that was written just a couple of years ago by uh, someone uh, from the Inter-American De Development Bank uh, called uh, called uh, India Latin America's Next Big Thing. But uh, aside from these, in general, uh, the Indian development differs from the Chinese development in a number of ways. Uh, first of all, at the political level, uh, China is engaged in a coordinated strategy that involves uh, political engagement, it involves some military engagement, it involves uh, a combination of uh, trade and investment and loans on, on the commercial side. And it's generally an engagement that, that's coordinated. Indeed, uh, China has put out uh, two policy white papers, uh, one in 2008 and one in 2014, talking about its, its coordinated strategy. And it's even put out uh, uh, two uh, what you'd call roadmaps about how it wants to take the relationship forward uh, with uh, the countries of SELAC, which are basically all of the countries of um, Central America, Latin America, and in, in, in the Caribbean, except for, of course, uh, the United States uh, and Canada. Um, India, by contrast, uh, has done a certain amount of business engagement. Um, at the diplomatic level, there is a, a distinction in that um, the Latin America portion of India's foreign relations uh, ministry is actually kind of half of, of, of one part of, uh, of the ministry. And so it inherently, India, India tends to inherently give less attention to Latin America uh, than China does as a as a foreign relations diplomatic engagement issue, um, what you also find is that um, 
although India uh, spends a, a lot of effort in, in two areas, uh, one being Brazil, uh, with which it's engaged uh, through a, a group uh, called, called the, the BRICS, uh, as well as uh, some of the countries in the Caribbean basin. Dr. Ellis, can yes. I interject real quick? Um, can you explain what the BRICS is for any listeners that don't know? Sure, sure. The uh, the BRICS was uh, initially a term that was created uh, by a, a investment house, Goldman Sachs, uh, a, a couple of years ago, uh, to talk about uh, some of a group of, of new promising developing countries: uh, Brazil, uh, Russia, India, and China, and then later South Africa was was added on. Uh, but later, the concept as a uh, symbol of kind of the, the leaders of the developing world uh, caught on as a political concept. And the group basically invented itself as a political entity, which now has created an associated uh, development bank, which uh, is still trying to get off the ground. Um, but um, in, that, in that sense, as, as India and China engaged uh, with uh, the region, uh, both countries are tied to Brazil in that Latin American engagement through the BRICS. So India is the I in BRICS, and, and of course, uh, China is, is the C in BRICS. Uh, Brazil, of course, being the the, the B. Um, but uh, so what you basically find is that India's engagement, first of all, tends to be a little bit less uh, coordinated and intense than China's does. It tends to be much more focused just on Brazil and a few of the countries in the Caribbean where uh, Indian immigrants uh, migrated uh, while uh, India and countries in the Caribbean were, were part of, of the British Commonwealth system. And so you still have a, a pretty large uh, Indian diaspora in places like uh, Guyana and Suriname and in Trinidad and Tobago. There's even um, a small uh, community of Indian diaspora in Haiti, for instance, as well. So ab- Absolutely. It comes, yeah, it comes from those, those uh, historic uh, Caribbean uh, flows. Um, but uh, but beyond that Caribbean focus and, and the Brazil focus, even when uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi went to the region, uh, the last major trip was, of course, in, in 2014 for the, the BRIC summit, actually, in Fortaleza, Brazil, uh, whereas his Chinese counterpart, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, did a multi-state trip and it had associated uh, series of conversations about new Chinese investment projects. Basically, uh, Prime Minister Modi went to the BRICS summit in Fortaleza and then and then went home, which is kind of symbolic of the differences between the two. And frankly, Indian businesses, and there are actually many good businesses uh, that do uh, investment in, in Latin America, um, oftentimes complain of, of a perceived lack of support from or coordination with the, the Indian government. And so that's, that, that's a big difference uh, from China. Now, in terms of the economic engagement, um, what you find is that actually Indian and Chinese uh, investments and commerce in the region are growing at similar rates, uh, typically uh, 5 to 10%. Uh, they've grown quite a bit in, in the past uh, 15 years. Um, but India started from a lower base, and so uh, Indian investment still tends to be about a seventh or an eighth of what Chinese is, and similarly, uh, commerce, Indian commerce with the region tends to be about a seventh or, 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 or an eighth. Um, the sectoral composition is a little bit different as, as well, uh, when you take a look as, especially at where Indian companies have invested. And so um, you have Indian companies invested in a handful of different uh, countries, but it's a concentration. So there's important investments in Brazil, of course, um, some in, in, in Mexico, some in Colombia. Um, Etc. Uh, whereas China is much more broadly engaged. Um, sectoral. Well, and let me interrupt yes. one more time. The um, just so our listeners know that uh, according to the Latinia report from IDB, 
there's 150 plus Indian companies that have operations in Latin America, and then of outbound foreign direct investment from India to Latin America is around 15% is what they're saying here. Yes. Um, now, the the 170 number that you stated is, is interesting in that um, a typical Chinese uh, pattern in an individual large Latin American co- uh, country, uh, China will typically have 100 to 200 Chinese companies in just one Latin American country. Wow. So, in, in, and it's, it's something that's grown. In, in many ways, um, India is where China was in about 2003, 2004 in Latin America. Having having said that, though, what you find is that the sectoral composition is a lot different. Uh, um, India has put a, a certain amount of, of money in manufacturing where it is competitive with China in some areas, uh, companies um, like, like Mahindra and, and Tata and, and others. Um, India, like China, has put uh, some money into the oil sector, a little bit less in the mining sector. But some of the big differences are, for example, um, you have some very important, uh, successful Indian companies in the pharmaceutical sector and in the IT sector in in Latin America, especially running uh, call centers, uh, sometimes to support the the U.S. market as as well as basically technology uh, consulting firms. That's an area where uh, the Chinese companies, with the exception of some side businesses by Huawei and ZTE, have been uh, relatively absent. Um, now, reciprocally, there are some of the areas in which China is most engaged, or at least uh, most known to be engaged in, in Latin America, where India is almost completely absent. Uh, the big area there is, is construction. So whereas you have big Chinese uh, policy banks like a China Development Bank or, or China Export-Import Bank, um, in the case of India, um, India's correspondent Export-Import Bank um, is really much less funded, it's much more more bureaucratic, and frankly has invested almost nothing in projects in, in Latin America. And so um so it mostly stuck to IT and manufacturing. It's yeah it's, it's uh, um the, the real the leaders for India when you think of Latin America are are really pharma, IT, um, and then yeah a handful of, of well known companies, especially in, in automotive uh, equipment, motorcycles, and so again companies like Bahaj, for example. And now, why? So I, maybe you were getting to this, but why do you think India is staying is is not getting into infrastructure development as much? Well, it just has to do with the differences in the the Indian economy and the relationship between the Indian companies and the Indian state versus the Chinese companies in in the Chinese state. So, um, so China has developed has put together a you know, infrastructure uh, state led development strategy. And so, what you've seen is is that uh, you know infrastructure development domestically in China, uh, financed by again you know, Chinese banks in a a, a leading sector, um, whereas it is in India, um, like ironically the United States and many other places, um, uh, in India's diverse democracy, infrastructure has received a, a bit less of attention. Matter of fact, uh, Indians often bemoan uh, their infrastructure difficulty, although they're playing catch up right now. And so, as Chinese uh, major construction companies like China Harbor, which is one of the CCCC companies. Uh, or, or Sino Hydro or China Water and Electric have, have moved out and looked for uh, highway and port and rail projects in, in Latin America um, with the backing of, of China Development Bank. Um, Indian companies have been really pretty much uh, filled it to their capacity at home. Um, and also, they have not had the support uh, from you know, lending institutions like their own policy bank 
that have really kind of given them the, the push to, to do the type of things that Chinese companies have tried to do in, in, in Latin America. So it's a, it, it has to do with just, again, the, the relationship between the, the Indian companies and the state and in the backing of the policy banks, which uh, exists in China and really not so much in, in India. Um, on that note, just uh, real quick, so that uh, at least according to America's Quarterly, uh, the largest Indian company in Latin America right now is in the manufacturing sector and is the Aditya Berla Group, which mm-hmm. uh, generates about $2 billion in revenue in lab activities uh, in aluminum production all the way to yarn. Exactly. So uh, that's interesting that that's their largest one. And how does that compare to the largest uh, Chinese company in the region? Sure. And it's actually really an order of magnitude smaller. Um, in the case of, uh, of Aditya Birla, um, actually, although the group itself is pretty diverse, uh, what they really do in, in Latin America is um, is, is aluminum. And, and they have uh, one um, pretty big aluminum refinery in Brazil that, frankly, has fallen on, on pretty hard times. Um, however, that's a capital-intensive industry, and, and so it, it generates the, the, the appearance of a, a pretty big investment. Uh, you also have a similar um, manufacturing investment with, uh, with ArcelorMittal in Mexico. Uh, which is another one of the the big ones, um, but um, but if you're talking, um, you know, at the end of the day, about the reality is that manufacturing investments, and if we're talking about traditional manufacturing, such as, for example, final assembly of cars or, or motorcycles, um, those tend to be, in general, an order of magnitude smaller than um, mining investments and, and things like that, which are much more capital intensive. So. Um, in a sense, um, I would cat- categorize the Adidas Berlin investment in Brazil as, as much more of a, you know, kind of a mining sector investment. Although it's aluminum, which is the, the processing uh, essentially of of, of, of mined goods. Um, but uh, in that extent, it, it actually compares. It's relatively peanuts by comparison to, for example, Peru, where Chinese mining companies like Min Metals uh, just uh, uh, spent uh, 5.8 billion dollars to to take over and start running the Las Bombas mine or. In, in the case of Toromocho, um, they're putting uh, $3 billion on top of about um, $1.4 billion that they already put into, into Toromocho to, to get it up and running. Um, but on the other hand, um, you know, Indian uh, you know, automotive sector investments or others, so for example, if we talk about Tata or Mahindra, um, those are roughly on par with some of the, the startup uh, you know, Chinese uh, motorcycle or, or, or car companies. Uh, especially some of the car companies in in Brazil, like um, like uh, Cherry or or, or Jack or uh, Photon, for example, in uh, which has assembly facilities in in Colombia and in Ecuador. But but in general, those manufacturing facilities are, are typically small, are really peanuts by by comparison to mining and petroleum sector investments, which are also the which are the the um, the biggest investments for India at this point. So moving more into yeah, and, and specifically, it's, yeah, it's important to, to call out that um, if you compare India and China in the extractive sectors, in, in petroleum and mining, um, again, uh, China is, is really an order of magnitude ahead. And so um, in the Indian case, the companies are much more market-oriented. Um, they have uh, So you have, for example, uh, you know, ONG, um, ONGC, you have Reliance, uh, you have SR, you have Gale Oil. Um, there's uh, some interesting heavy oil capabilities, and so Indian companies have been involved, for example, in, in Venezuela, although 
Uh, they've definitely fallen on hard times there and really have, have arguably fallen behind uh, the Russians and the Chinese, who are the ones who have really gone against market signals in, in Venezuela and have been been sticking it out. Um, but um, and, and again, in the mining sectors, as you pointed out, I mean, you've got a Berlin in Brazil. Um, you've got IFCO, which is a, a phosphates uh, in, in potash um, uh, uh, capability in, in Peru. Um, Jindal, which actually lost out in a pretty dramatic way in, in Bolivia, actually to a, to a Chinese company, Asano Steel. Um, so, so at the end of the day, even though um, capital-wise, uh, Adida Berla is the is, is the big mining investment in in, in Brazil. Um, the um, you know. Again, um, you know, it's it's an order of magnitude beyond where the Chinese are are at. I think the uh, the Chinese sunk investment uh, since two thousand three comes out to about one hundred and fourteen billion dollars, which is again, it's it's about a seventh of what U.S. sunk investment in the region is. But um, again, it's uh, I think three or four times, if I recall correctly, um, where, uh, where where India is at right now in the region. Exactly. I think. Um, let me see. I- it's it was thirty billion, I think, in two thousand sixteen, and I think it's somewhere in the order of fifty billion right now, if I remember correctly. Yes. Um, so yeah, about four times or slightly more uh, on China's end. Now, um, I guess one of the other big questions here, as you were saying, China's strategy in the region is very coordinated. As far as India goes, it sounds like they don't have a lot of support. Um, or they don't feel like they have a lot of support from the Indian government to to develop any kind of a strategy in the region, and it's more the the private sector sort of moving in on its own. If I understand you correctly, um, and I've noticed that there are some articles out there saying that uh, Modi really fell behind in terms of engagement with the region um, economically and probably strategic and security cooperation as well. I think uh, absolutely and. There's multiple dimensions of that. Uh, first of all, uh, the Indian foreign ministry, in, in many ways, is similar to some of the other foreign ministries in Latin America. Um, you know, maybe uh, Brazil and Itamarchi is is the best comparison. Um, it the Indian foreign ministry has was traditionally much more ideologically focused. Uh, there's a lot of concentration, for example, in the days of the non-aligned movement in again political relationships. Uh, India invested a lot of capital, for example, in its relationship ideologically with 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 Venezuela and some of the other uh, you know left of center um, movements. Um, and um, in many ways, for India, uh, foreign relations were much more divorced from commerce. Uh, by contrast to China, where in many ways foreign relations um, inherently grew supporting uh, the commercial strategic objectives of, of, of its country. Now, let me ask you um, this. if So do with the amount of growth that they're experiencing in the region, though, since it is since growth, since it has growth at the same rate uh, in the LAC region as China, even though it's an order of magnitude smaller, um, do we see do we, you know, pull out our crystal ball? Can't, you know, is the forecast that the Indian government is going to get much more involved in a uh, holistic strategy in the region? What do you think? Well, right now, the first question is, you know, what happens in Indian politics? There's a certain continuity of Chinese politics, especially with the consolidation of power by by Xi Jinping, um, that doesn't occur in, in India, which, uh, like other democracies, oscillates a lot more. And so right now, um, it's interesting, uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi, when he came into office, promised expanded international engagement. But his international engagement has been much more Asia-focused um, and in the immediate vicinity of, of India, 
um, as opposed to to Latin America focused. Uh, so the question then becomes, you know, what might a future Indian government uh, do? Um, and uh, of course, that that depends on the political currents in, in India. But um, it this again the the structure of India indicates that uh, you might see some changes, but uh, it it's probably likely that that limited coordination will will continue into the future. And um, you know, the other, but the other piece about that is, as you pointed out, Indian growth that has other implications. So, for example, right now with China's one child policy, uh, well, which has now been expanded uh, cautiously and now completely to you know permission to have you know two children. But uh, even so, uh, China's in the middle of a democratic, uh, I'm sorry, demographic decline, whereas India um, is po- population continues to expand. And so, ironically. India will actually have a greater population um, and possibly a greater and less protected consumer market than China will have within uh, 20 you know, years if India continues to grow. And so you come up with the the irony that, um, you know, on the one hand, uh, Indian companies actually may provide a better role as partners in, in Latin America just because they actually tend to invest in the region and, and employ people in, in the region um, and uh, respect intellectual property rights and, and things like that, even though they invest less right now. And reciprocally, uh, the Indian government um, in, in India itself may actually offer more opportunities for Latin American businessmen because although its market is maybe not quite as big in terms of the you know, aggregate purchasing power of, of, of its consumers, it is, um, it, it's far less protected than the Chinese market is. And uh, and thus, uh, in some ways, uh, you come with the irony that uh, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, don't be fooled just by the the aggregate numbers. Uh, you know, India you know, may actually be a, a very very attractive partner for for Latin America, both as an investor and a, and a consumer in the long run. On a future podcast, I actually want to get deeper into how much India is engaging with the Pacific Alliance. If you can speak on that just briefly. Um, but that's also of interest to me is the growth of the Pacific Alliance and its engagement with Asia in general, and how you know what would India's potential within that context be as well. Can you speak to that? Like just thirty seconds sure. or so. Yeah, India um, right now I believe has an observer status in the Pacific Alliance, but frankly, when the alliance was created and as it has expanded, uh, the initial focus was uh, to an extent on China and secondarily on some of the other countries with which Latin America already has um, many free trade agreements and, and and established relations, especially Japan, which has been in the region since the 1970s, Korea, which has been in the region since the 1990s. Um, in some cases, it was business as usual once the Pacific Alliance was formed. And for any listeners that don't know, the Pacific Alliance is a, um, um, what is that? It's basically a, a trade agreement and um, a security and political and trade, uh, growing trade agreement between Mexico, Colombia, Peru, and Chile, and potentially um, Panama and Costa Rica, I think, if I remember the last update that I had on it. Yeah, the, the official purpose is to basically integrate its its market in, in the flows of, of various different things of value. And so, um, you know, basically an, an integrated financial market through the MILA system, an integrated uh, com- commerce market free of tariffs, uh, integrated flows of intellectual property and capital and things like that. Um, but implicitly, um, besides being a market, a common market, ironically, between four countries which trade very little with, with each other, uh, the real idea was that by pooling the resources that it would be a way of 
allowing these Pacific-facing countries to more effectively realize value added and expand their business with the countries across the Pacific and Asia, like like China. So, um, well, they have- uh, and to and their their combined economies uh, come out to I think the the to the same size as the economy of Brazil, if I remember correctly. Yes. No. It's uh, um. So it's a more yeah. competitive group in that respect. Um, now let's move into something a little bit more. Uh, th- that's a little bit more of a security concern with all this. And, you know, I'm going to ask you to kind of pull out your crystal ball on this one as well. Um, so do you see any future collaboration in the region between India and the U.S. or possibly more so with China, depending on uh, Sino-Indian uh, relationships in the future? I think there certainly are strategic interests for India to collaborate with the United States in Latin America, just as it's already increasingly collaborating with the United States in Asia. Uh, Most of those opportunities are political at this point. Uh, So, uh, for example, um, in many ways, uh, India's interests with respect to BRICS in countering that of China um, is similar to Brazil's interest as part of the, the, the BRICS. And so in many ways, the, the B and the I in, in, in BRICS, uh, you know, there's, a, there's a vested interest or a, a similar interest uh, to, to the United States uh, there. Um, and, and I think with respect to also just the general uh, construction of a commerce regime, an investment regime that is respectful of intellectual property, that allows free trade, uh, I, I think uh, you know India, you know, as with the TPP countries, the Trans-Pacific Partner now TPP eleven countries, because the United States is, is pulled down. Those countries, um, again, and those those interests in in having a commerce that respects intellectual property and, and has dispute resolution mechanisms and transparency, as, as opposed to just uh, you know commerce of who is able to have the cheapest goods and best coordinate with with their government, like like China does. Um, to that extent, I think there's a strategic role of, of India in working with the United States in helping to shape a trans-Pacific and really a global trade regime um, in which uh, you know all countries can be secure and, and profit from their trade, and, and, and that way uh, contain some of the, the more uh, you know damaging impulses of of, of China. And uh, again, certainly in the the broader political spectrum uh, in, in the global stage, uh, you know, India is a player, and really. As the world's most populous democracy, I think there's a vested interest in continuing to work together in, in all parts of the globe. And, and frankly, not just India, but but also uh, India in concert with other like-minded actors, such as Japan, such as South Korea, et cetera. Very good. Um, I think the last thing I'm, I want to ask, if you can speak to it, is, you know, Venezuela is a very hot topic right now uh, between the growing refugee crisis and uh, the economical crisis and the pretty extreme political crisis that is uh, sort of exacerbating all these issues. And you mentioned earlier uh, India's engagement with the oil sector in Venezuela and how can you speak to that just a little bit more where that's at right now and any other type of engagement that India has with Venezuela and what the future of that looks like? Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, India has a a, a number of um, uh, large, capable oil companies. Uh, we talked about SR and Gale and in Reliance and and, and ONGC. Um, and uh, 
Venezuela has been a very lucrative market for a number of, of different players. And so for a number of years, um, India was kind of in the, the middle. It wasn't quite as much of a ideologically oriented uh, you know, state company like Rosneft in, in Russia or like uh, some of the Chinese companies like like CNPC, um, but it was a little bit more state-oriented with politics that were more acceptable to the Venezuelan uh, populist regime um, than were, for example, ConocoPhillips or, or Exxon uh, ExxonMobil. And so um, even after some of the other uh, private companies pulled out, uh, the major Indian companies continued to explore development. Uh, the Indian companies have fallen on difficult times right now. Now, one of the reasons that the Indian companies are attractive as partners in Venezuela is that India is one of the few places in the world with um, extensive capability to refine cheaply heavy oil. And so it's one of the few places where you can basically take and, and process the Venezuelan very heavy crude that comes out of the Orinoco tar sands. Uh, the other refineries, of course, being in the U.S. Gulf Coast and some of the new facilities that they're building in, in, in China. So... Um, so India was a logical market for uh, for that Venezuelan oil, especially as you know the United States in processing Venezuelan oil in the United States became a a bigger and bigger you know risk with uh, with worsening relations. However, again, um, almost all of the major Indian oil companies right now have serious problems right now just because of the collapse of the Venezuelan economy. And uh, at the end of the day, the Venez the Indian companies do not have basically extra money to front. Venezuela uh, to to do things for them. So right now these days, it's uh, you know the, a lot of the Indian projects have been moving forward very slowly. Um, and indeed, um, another piece of that is is the fact that one of the major Indian uh, companies, uh, SR, who has a a very significant ref refinery for processing Venezuelan heavy crude uh, called the Vadnyar refinery, uh, was actually. Uh, was actually a large portion of that was purchased by the Russian company Rosneft. And so there's actually some belief that um, Rosneft may actually be looking for this India asset to use to to process uh, some of the, the Venezuela oil it gets in order to avoid being uh, limited by the sanctions regime that the, the U.S. is imposing, ironically, both on Russia and, and on Venezuela. Um, but so, uh, so, so at the end of the day, India is, is unfortunately being increasingly marginalized, uh, although it was hanging on for, for, for a long time quite well in the, in the Venezuela oil sector. That's a lot of uh, really good information, especially on that topic. I mean, it's becoming more and more noticeable how much Venezuela has scaled back its production and how that's affecting uh, the Caribbean um, and other countries in the region. So it's very interesting to hear um, how India has engaged with that sector and specifically in, in Venezuela. Um, Dr. Ellis, thank you for, uh, being here. Thank you for all the good information. Is there anything else you would like to add? Um, any final thoughts or, and, or shameless plugs? You can always throw a shameless plug in, in one of my episodes. <laughs> well, just, uh, three quick things that I, that I would say. One of the topics that, uh, we had uh, discussed in a preliminary fashion that I think that it's important to recognize is that um, one of the areas where you don't see a whole lot of Indian engagement in, in the region actually is military. Um, you, with the exception of a small participation in RIMPAC, uh, you don't see the, the same level of you know, you know, Latin American students going to Indian institutions or vice versa. That's actually something that um, there's, there's probably growth opportunity there. But um, you see a little bit of, of Indian arms sales, for example, companies like uh, um, uh, 
companies like Mahindra, which, which sells some military vehicles to, com- to countries like Honduras. But, um, Other but again, companies that sell optics. Um, yes. It, Exactly. Or yeah, I think um, you have uh, MKU sells body armor, but but relatively small uh, companies. Uh, yet a failed attempt by a company called Hindustan Aeronautics uh, to to sell a light helicopter called the Dhruv, which uh, after four of the seven they delivered uh, actually crashed in in Ecuador. Um, and frankly, the you know the Indians themselves recognized that it was not the, the best product in the world. Um, you know those uh, you know, those things have not gone forward. So. Um, yeah, so that's that, that's an interesting uh, sector that provides opportunities. That's um, that's worth watching. Uh, the um, the other thing is, as I as I mentioned, that uh, um, you know, for those who are following the emergence of uh, transnational organized crime trends, especially um, uh, trans-Pacific organized crime trends, um, uh, just uh, just released my my new book, Transnational Organized Crime in, in Latin America. So uh, there's my uh, there is my, uh, my my plug. Your shameless plug. <laughs> excellent it's it's a work it it, it's worth everybody's while though that's uh that's probably um that's probably something that uh everyone will get a lot out of if they take the time to go in uh and purchase that and read it um uh anything else you want to plug in (laughs) i think um, that's uh you've given me a great opportunity and uh, um uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to to share my my thoughts with you no and thank you for being here and and discussing and discussing this um, uh, topic that doesn't get very much attention, but probably should. Um, And with that, uh, again, thank you. Thank you to our audience for listening, and have a good evening. You too. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for listening to Latin American Intersections. If you enjoy our podcast or find it insightful, please be sure to share with your friends and colleagues. Hasta la próxima. See you next time. big thank you to Kasim Sultan of Sad Boy Music, who is working diligently to improve our audio as we develop our production techniques. Sad Boy Music offers competitive rates for recording, editing, mixing, mastering, music production, video editing, and motion graphic design. You can follow Sad Boy Music on social media at 5ADB0iMusic.